Hi, welcome to another impacting sermon from NBC Church. We hope that this message encourages, challenges and equips you in your walk with Christ. Please consider leaving a review for the podcast as it helps with exposure and getting the gospel out to thousands of people. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. And thank you, Ruth, for the music and the songs that you've chosen for us this morning. It's greatly appreciated. The observant amongst you will have noticed that I've got a much bigger Bible this week. This isn't just because I vary the Bible that I bring to church. Um, It's actually very rare for me not to preach from either the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Bible. But for those of you who love the King James, we are in the New King James Bible this morning for a reason that will become clear in a moment. And that reason is all to do with the times in which we live a time in which uh, God has chosen to place us. And it's got an awful lot to do with a particular word that this particular version translates particularly accurately, whereas even though I love the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Bible, they do not do as good a job of this particular Greek word as this particular version. So if you've got a New King James this morning, you'll be particularly blessed because that's the version I'll be using. The other thing that's a bit unusual uh, from my perspective for today is that I'm actually preaching from an epistle, i.e. one of the New Testament letters. And I've noticed over the years, and several people have pointed it out to me, that that's a a very rare thing for me to do. Uh, For those of you that have heard my preaching, uh, you'll know that I tend to focus a lot on the Old Testament and on the book of Revelation. Well, today is an exception, and I praise God for that. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great preacher and pastor from Westminster Chapel in London, uh, once spoke about his great privilege of preaching almost entirely from the New Testament epistles. And a forerunner of his at Westminster Chapel, uh, a fellow by the name of G. Campbell Morgan, who was a Welshman, whose ministry spanned the Atlantic Ocean. He had two tenures as pastor of Westminster Chapel, as well as a period of time in the United States of America. He tended to preach entirely on the Old Testament and the Gospels. And Martin Lloyd-Jones once said he left all the the epistles for me, which is rather wonderful. And it speaks to how God uses different personalities, different aptitudes, different people to accomplish different things. But it's all for his glory. And with that in mind, let's pray. Lord, in the words of Jeremiah, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who brings forth steadfast love, righteousness and justice on the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Father, for the great privilege of being called to know you and the awesome privilege of being called in some measure to understand you, We give you thanks and praise and glory. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, through the preaching of this word and its reception in our hearts and minds and lives, that you might indeed 
bring forth steadfast love, righteousness and justice on the earth. For we know, Lord, that it's in these things that you delight. Open our ears, open us, Lord. Open our understanding, Lord, to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I chose those two particular passages from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians because of the occurrence of a particular Greek word in each of those little passages of Scripture. If you've got the New International Version this morning of the Bible, you will not find that word because the New International Version, while it's a wonderful translation in many respects, totally seems to obliterate the significance and the meaning of this word, uh, which I put to you is uh, a shame because when uh, a Christian grasps the significance of this particular word and what it means from the perspective of history and the perspective of our lives within human history, it's a glorious, glorious thing. So if you're following in the New International Version this morning, you won't be able to follow it, so you might as well either put it down or just listen or something like that. The word we're talking about this morning is found in Ephesians 1 verse 10 and in Ephesians 3 verse 2. And here's the word according to the New King James Version, which is the only version other than the Old King James that I know of that consistently translates this word. Verse 10 of Ephesians 1, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. And then Ephesians 3 We'll read verses 1 and 2. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of, his our word again, the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. The word we're looking at today is translated by the New King James and by the old-fashioned King James Version, dispensation. The New American Standard Bible tends to be a little bit inconsistent, but you still get the meaning. Sometimes it calls it administration. Sometimes it calls it stewardship. The ESV uh, tends to say in one of those verses, administration, and in the other part, plan, which is a very, very poor translation. The Greek word we are looking at this morning, the significance of which you will see and hopefully come to really appreciate in a moment, is the Greek word Oikoinomia. Oikoinomia. O-I-K-O-N-O-M-E-I-A in its English transliteration. Oikoinomia. The Greeks were great word architects. They liked to put two words together to make a new word. And the two words that are inherent in oikoinomia, often translated in English dispensation, stewardship or administration, were the following two words. Oikos, the Greek word for house. The basic unit of Greek society was the oikos, O-I-K-O-S. And think about that for a moment. Most Greek households, there was the extended family living there. There were guests living there. There were servants and slaves living there. That was the oikos, the basic unit of Greek society. That's one of the words. The other word in oikonomia, translated in English dispensation, stewardship or administration, is 
noimos or nomoi, which stands for law. We get the words taxonomy, economy, and astronomy from that Greek word for law. The law of something, the rules that apply to something. So the Greek word oikonomia, dispensation, stewardship, or administration, but not plan, actually means the laws by which someone, in this case God, is stewarding or administering his house. I don't know about you, if you ever visit different people's houses, you will notice that different people apply different dispensations, different types of rules to the ways in which they do certain things. For a household to survive, three basic rules have got to be applied. One is basic hygiene. The other is basic tidiness, depending on how you define that. And the third one is that income should exceed expenditure consistently. If you don't apply or misapply any one or more of those three rules, your household may not survive. Washing up is a primary example. Uh, I go and see my friend Kate. I went to see my friend Kate in Panola last week. And Kate has this particular dispensation for her home where it's bad stewardship to do the dishes after breakfast and after lunch. You wait until after tea. And she gets, she laughs at me because I get antsy and everything if ever I have a meal with her because I want to go to her kitchen and do the washing up. But that doesn't fit with her dispensation. So I've got to sit there and just think, you don't do the pots here, Philip. You don't do the pots here. That's to do with this Greek word, oikonomia. Farmers would apply a particular dispensation. They would have particular rules for their particular estate. As I understand it, wheat farmers would have a planting season, a growing season, and a harvest season. And the amount of work that you're putting into your farm or your estate in those different seasons might vary slightly depending on, or even significantly, what dispensation you're actually in. And the reason we're looking at this word today is because we are living through tumultuous times of change. And many people's focus is on what is the virus doing? What is this pandemic saying to us? Is it getting better or is it getting worse? The phrase second wave is almost as popular these days, Peter, as unprecedented. Because people are worried about second waves and so on and so forth. As Christians, our focus at all times, including tumultuous and slightly less tumultuous times, should be upon the living God and upon his word. We ought to be men and women and young people who have the spirit of the men of Issachar, who understood the times, there's the word about seasons again, who understood the times and therefore knew what Israel should do. That's why we're looking at this word dispensation, oikonomia, the laws with which God governs his house, and his house is the earth. His house is actually the whole universe. But from our perspective, the unit we're concerned about, because this is where we live, is the earth. Let's have a look at a couple of other instances in Scripture where this word oikonomia actually uh, arises. Let's look initially at Luke chapter 16. We're not going to read the whole parable. We're just going to use the occurrence of the word oikonomia, the rules or the laws by which a person uh, governs their house to illustrate the significance of this particular word. 
Luke 16, verses 1 to 4. And he also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your oikoinomia, your stewardship, your dispensation, for you can no longer be steward. So this fella, you know, who owned the estate, he was busy doing something like, I don't know what he was doing, he was going on his holidays or playing with his yacht or something like that, and he was wealthy enough to employ someone to manage his farm for him. And the fella sets off and he's applying a particular dispensation, a particular set of rules to the running of this farm. And then somebody says to the farm, the, the fellow who owns the estate, you know, the fellow you've appointed, he's got nothing between his ears. Have you seen the mess he's making of your farm? And the fellow says, give me an account of your oikonomia, your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the oikonomia away from me. I cannot dig, I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, the oikonomia, they may receive me into their houses. Now we're not looking at that parable in full today. Just want to illustrate, there's another instance of the word oikonomia, stewardship or administration in scripture. A related term or word that Jesus uses quite a lot. And again, Bible translations sometimes let the Lord down slightly with this particular word, is the word eon or age. Let's have a look at a couple of instances of the word eon in scripture. Matthew 12, verses 31 to 32. The eon, if you like, is the season of time in which God, in this case the householder of the whole earth, is applying a particular dispensation, a particular oikonomia, to that particular period in human history. Matthew 12, verses 31 to 32. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age, or eon, or in the age eon to come. Let's have a look at Matthew 24. This, these few verses here have often misled Christians because they overlook and miss the significance of the word Eon. We'll read verses 1 to 3 of Matthew 24. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat, rabbis always sat when they taught especially when the thing was of importance that they were teaching. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, where's Jesus returning to? 
Mount of Olives. So he's sitting on the very spot that he's going to return to. That's significant too. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the eon, end of the age? If your Bible there translates that word age as world, you need to respectfully put a little pencil through it and write age because the Greek word there is eon, meaning age, not world. Excuse me while I get some water. You with me so far? We are looking at the fact that God stewards the planet by applying certain rules. And as we'll see in a second, it's very, very clear throughout Scripture that God applies certain different rules at different seasons of history. Certain things remain the same, and we'll look at those in a moment, but certain other things differ. Here's an example. Matthew chapter 10, while we're still in... Uh, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 10, verses 5 to 6. This is a clue as to which age Jesus is actually talking about in the Matthew 12 passage that we just looked at about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully to these words. He's sending out the 12 disciples. Verse 5 of Matthew 10. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now, many evangelists and many churches take some of those verses and apply them for all the right reasons and for all good laudable motives to the here and now. But verse 5, they miss out. Because how many churches do you know hold an evangelistic event or a mission event or even a seeker service or something like that, if you want to call them that, but there's, there's somebody at the door saying, excuse me, are you Jewish? Because if you're not Jewish, you can't come in. Or you're talking to somebody about Jesus and you say, hang on, we've had, this has been a good conversation so far, but are you Jewish, Martin? Because if you're not Jewish, I can't talk to you about this. Did the Lord mean what he said there? Or did the Lord not mean what he said there? Don't go to the Gentiles unless your surname here today is Cohen, Levi, or maybe Levitt, the anglicized version of Levi. According to that verse, we shouldn't be here. But of course that's not true because we're no longer living in the particular dispensation, the particular oikonomia that Jesus was living and walking in when he was giving those instructions to the twelve. Because that dispensation, that particular season of time, that particular age in which God was using particular rules to steward and manage and administer his house finished with the death and resurrection of Jesus, and I'm going to say something here in the interest of being accurate, but we're going back to it for a short period of time. World history is going back to it for a short period of time, which we'll get onto in several weeks' time, but I don't want to jump the gun. But that dispensation, that age where Jesus and his disciples were only going to Jewish people, is now a thing of the past. 
So let's see if we can work out a framework, a dispensational framework for appreciating and understanding our Bibles better. Because if we understand our Bibles better, we're going to understand the purpose of God in these times so much better, which can only be good for us, but it's also going to be good for our hearers as well. I put to you that so far in our Bible readings this morning, we've had three distinct dispensations mentioned. We'll start where we started in Ephesians 1, verse 10. Ephesians 1, verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he, that is God, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. That dispensation of which Paul was speaking there was future when Paul wrote those words, and it is still future today. Praise God, by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he has gathered into one body, Jew and Gentile from across the world, and made us one in Christ, but we don't yet see all things in heaven and on earth united together in him. Paul calls that dispensation there the fullness of the times. I put to you, and we'll come back to this in a few weeks' time if you invite me back. Well, uh, we, you can also call it the millennium. The millennial reign of Christ is the dispensation that Paul is talking about there. When Christ literally and physically rules from Jerusalem for a thousand years over the whole of this earth. Dispensation number two in our readings from this morning. Ephesians 3 verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Many of the Jewish apostles in Jerusalem struggled with Paul. They couldn't understand why he was so fixated on going to the Gentiles. Because surely reconciliation in Christ was only for Jews. He was writing to a Gentile predominantly church. He actually says that twice in the book of Ephesians. I'm writing to you Gentiles. Because you've received the dispensation of the grace of God. And notice he uses the word mystery in that passage. Mystery isn't like Agatha Christie or modern day kind of mystery things. You know where you kind of like somebody's got murdered and you've got to work out who's been murdered and it's a mystery. Mystery in Greek is the word muiu. Which means something that you didn't know yesterday, but which has now been revealed to you today. In other words, you didn't puzzle it out. It wasn't you being a Sherlock Holmes or a Agatha Christie or Bergerac, or I'm showing how old I am here, your modern day equivalents. It was revealed to you. And Paul is saying there's a new dispensation. Since Jesus walked the earth, the dispensation of grace has been manifested on the earth. God has changed the rules somewhat. Israel is no longer his primary missionary base for sharing his nature and his glory across this planet. You are. He said that to the Ephesians and he says it to us today. You are. Yes, seek my face. Yes, pray that I'll do this or that or the other. But be my missionary base because you are living in the dispensation of grace. So there's two dispensations. The third one 
Let's go back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. If ages and dispensations had not been important to the Lord, he would have just said there, anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him now or ever. That's not what he said. He said either in this age or the age that is to come. Now the age that was then to come was the dispensation of grace that Paul's just been talking about in Ephesians 3. So what was the dispensation that Jesus was literally in the here and now speaking those words to the disciples? Where or what or whom was his primary missionary base before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Israel. The dispensation of Israel. You see what's emerging here just from our uh, looking at scripture. God has administered the planet differently in different times. And we've come up with three dispensations. Some people like to call the dispensation of Israel the dispensation of law. Hands up if you've ever heard that term. The dispensation of law. Some people also like to call, usually the same people, like to call the dispensation of the church the dispensation of grace. Anybody ever heard that? And that's publicly correct because Paul uses that term in Ephesians 3. I put to you the problem with suggesting that there is a dispensation of law and a dispensation of grace is it suggests that in the time of Israel, the only thing that mattered was law. And it also suggests that once the church has come along, the law is done away with and there's only grace matters. Now the problem with that is you read the whole of the Old Testament and it is full, it is replete with God's grace. Right from the moment where he took those innocent animals because Adam and Eve had tried to sow fig leaves together to cover their nakedness because they were ashamed. God took those innocent animals and in grace made skins for the man and woman. Grace is all over the, New, the Old Testament, says the preacher of the Old Testament. And similarly, the law has not disappeared just because we're in the dispensation of the church. An analogy that I find particularly helpful here is you think of the Old Testament, the dispensation of Israel, people had the law on their backs. They were covered by the law. A bit like a tortoise has its skeletal shell over it as a protection. There's how law functioned in the dispensation of Israel. How law functions today, it's like our spine. It's what keeps us upright. Because the law of God is the expression, the manifestation of the very nature of God. The Ten Commandments express His nature. Which is why there's only Father, Son and Holy Ghost can keep the first commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy mind and with all thy soul and with all thy strength. Hands up if you've ever kept that commandment. None of us have. And the Jews knew that they couldn't keep it either. But Father, Son and Holy Spirit, in reference to one another, they keep it constantly and eternally and consistently. Glory be to God. So we've got the dispensation of Israel, the dispensation of the church, and the dispensation of the fullness of times, in other words, the millennium. Was there anything before Israel in Scripture? Anyone can answer? Did scripture start with Israel? 
No, it started with the creation and the fall and Noah's flood and the Tower of Babel. And only then, in Genesis 12, was this Gentile, whose name was Abram, from Ur of the Chaldeans, called across the river to become a Hebrew. So there definitely was a period of time when God was stewarding the planet before Israel. If during that period of time, you know, for example, you'd spoken to Melchizedek when he comes out to meet Abraham when he's fought the kings and said to him, well, you can't be a priest because you're not of the line of Levi. He would have said to you, who's Levi? And he would have been quite accurate in saying that because Levi wasn't born yet. The priesthood was different before Abraham was called to cross the river. You see that too in the book of Job. There's a clue as to when the book of Job might have actually been written, or not so much written, but enacted. Because Job, if you see Job chapter 1, he was clearly the priest of his household. That's why he made intercession daily for his sons and daughters. Because priesthood was different. There was a different dispensation prior to the call of Abraham. So if we've called one of our dispensations today Israel, another one the church, and another one the millennium or the fullness of times, let's call the fourth one pre-Israel. Is that all right? Suits? It's accurate, even if you don't like it, even if it's not trendy or you know particularly enamoring or something like that. It's an accurate description. There was a pre-Israel dispensation. That dispensation came to an end with the Tower of Babel. And you'll notice from this that there's always a transition when God brings in a new dispensation. It's never sudden. But there were certain aspects of the Tower of Babel that were totally sudden. Roger Price, the English preacher from Chichester Christian Fellowship in the south of England, who was a geology teacher by profession, wonderful, wonderful Bible teacher. He went to glory at the age of 40, so he didn't get too much opportunity to listen to too much of his Bible teaching. But boy, he crammed an awful lot into a relatively young life, especially since he was an atheist till about the age of 19. Roger Price used to do this beautiful thing about the Tower of Babel. You know, they were building it quickly because they wanted this tower to map out the heavens, because they were responding to Satan's old lie, you shall be as gods. Just like people in our own world today are responding to Satan's old lie, you shall be as gods. So they're building this thing quickly, and there's a fellow there on the, on the Tower of Babel, and he says to his mate, pass me that hammer, will you? And the fellow says to him, what did you just say? What are you talking like that for? And the fellow says, I just want the hammer. And the fellow says, but... You're talking like nothing I've ever heard before. Because God's just confused the tongues on the earth. So he says to another fellow, pass me that hammer, will you? And he says something in an even weirder language. And the first fellow goes around saying, everybody's gone mad around here. Until eventually he finds somebody who speaks the same language, David. Isn't it wonderful when you meet somebody that speaks the same language? And, and you say to him, we, we, would, we would have said to each other, Everybody else has gone bonkers. Have you heard how they're talking? That's how radical this shift was. Because God was preparing the ground for nations. Prior to the Tower of Babel, there were no nations. There were just families with heads of the families as the priests. But as immediately after the Tower of Babel, you get the table of nations in Scripture. And then you get God calling Abraham of Ur of the Chaldeans to cross the river and become a Hebrew because he's setting up the, the primary nation, the nation of Israel. 
So there's four dispensations, and for many people, that's enough. But I want to suggest to you, if you want to be really accurate, there was a dispensation of innocence in the Garden of Eden. The way that God stewarded or administered the planet in the Garden of Eden was very, very different to how he did subsequent to the fall. So there's five suggested dispensations. One of the problems with those that become dispensationalist Christians is like many, many other things in life, they can take certain things too far and find a dispensation, you know, just about on every single page of the Bible. We don't do that. But it is important to recognize if God has changed the way he governs the planet, what might that mean? So here's our little scheme in brief summary. Creation to the fall. The dispensation of innocence. The Tower of Babel through to the death and resurrection. Sorry, from <laughs> the fall to the Tower of Babel. The dispensation of pre-Israel. From the Tower of Babel to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember his disciples in Matthew 24 were asking him, what will be the signs, not of the end of the world, but the end of the age? From Tower of Babel to the death and resurrection of Christ, the dispensation of Israel. And if you invite me back in future weeks, I will share with you how there's a little bit of that dispensation that is still to come in history. That's found in Daniel chapter 9, if you want to look that up at some stage between now and then. Then comes the dispensation of the church which started with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we are still living in it. And at some point in the future, much closer than what it was when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, will come the dispensation of the fullness of times or the millennium. There you have a dispensational framework. St. Augustine, one of the church fathers, said this, Distinguish the times and the scripture will be in harmony with itself. Distinguish the times in which particular books of the Bible were either written or were they written about, and the scripture is in harmony with itself. A dispensational framework, such as we've looked at in brief outline this morning, enables you to clear up so many of the contradictions in Scripture, or the apparent contradictions in Scripture. Here's an example. Keep an eye on the time, otherwise the lunch will be burning. And the dispensation of more than one household will go out the window, and it'll be the preacher's fault. So I'm looking for, towards the end of Matthew 25, here is a passage of scripture that evangelicals, including Baptists, who believe that we are saved by grace and grace alone, if they're honest with themselves, they're going to struggle with this. Matthew 25, from 31, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. 
and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now you see why that's a problem to people who believe that salvation is by grace alone. Because it seems to be suggesting that it's by your works that you'll either be saved or condemned. If you want the answer to that question, you'll have to come back to a future sermon that I'm preaching here when I apply a dispensational framework to the passage that we've just read. And it totally, totally harmonizes because as Augustine said, distinguish the times and the scripture is in harmony with itself two more things before we finish number one across all of the dispensations that we've briefly looked at today and i've suggested to you are there in scripture certain things do not change number one the character of god never changes throughout these dispensations and ages of the earth Number two, other than in the age of innocence, when man was not fallen, the fallenness of man and woman, mankind, does not change. Neither does the destiny of individual men or women change throughout all of these dispensations that scripture takes us through. Men and women individually are either going to spend eternity in heaven or in the lake of fire that burns for all eternity, otherwise known as hell. That does not change. Fourthly, and this may surprise some of you, the means of salvation in all of these dispensations does not change. It is always through Christ and Christ alone. Nor the name under heaven on earth by which men and women might be saved. You know, some Christians labor under such muddled understanding of how Jews got saved. They say things like, oh, well, they were probably saved by keeping the law. But you can't even keep the first commandment. None of us can, except God himself. Jews knew that they were saved through Genesis 3.15. And if you don't know what that prophecy says, have a look at it. Because it's a prophecy at the time that Eve received her name, the mother of all living, that the, sa the Satan, the serpent, would bruise the heel of Eve's descendants. And you, he, Jesus would crush its head. And people in the pre-Israel dispensation and in the Israel dispensation knew that that was so. There was only one means, one way by which men and women could be saved. And fifthly and finally, the angelic conflict 
is there throughout Scripture. We see it in the garden when Satan took on the form of the serpent. And we see it throughout the book of Revelation and everything in between. My brother here, Nick, blessed a dear man who is not yet a Christian by any means on Thursday, Wednesday. It was Wednesday, wasn't it? Simply by summarizing Revelation 12, verses 5 to 12. And he'd been reading it the night before. And this fellow, who's an Indian fellow, had just said to me in the car to meet Nick, I think I need to read the Bible someday. I've heard there's a book in it called the Book of Revelation. And it's got prophecy in it all about the future. And then over coffee, after our walk in the Horn and Mint trails, Nick starts talking about Revelation 12. And in the car on the way back to Mount Gambier, because Nick was going back to Panola, not with us, Ambrish says to me, Philip, you Christians, it's so amazing that you have this book, this Bible, because you can communicate with each other around the Bible. And he was so, so excited, needless to say, he's got his own copy of the Bible subsequent to last Wednesday. The times in which we live are times that are crying out for this word. Simply and properly rendered, understood and shared in love. But my final point for this, for today, is this. If God stewards the earth according to oikonomia, the laws by which he stewards his house, and he has made us in his image, then what has he called you to steward at this time in your life? Do you have a lot of time on your hands at the moment? And you're not used to that. You're used to being busy. You like to be busy. Then how are you going to steward that? Because if us having an oikonomia that doesn't just apply, apply to washing up or planting, growing, harvest season, but applies to absolutely everything that we could turn our hearts or our minds or our hands to, then God has given you something to steward at this season of your life. What rules are you applying? What, dispense, what does your dispensation, your stewardship look like in relation to your money, in relation to the ministry of hospitality in your home, in relation to whether you put off writing that letter to some auntie that you've been getting pangs of conscience that you ought to have written to her and haven't for quite a long time. The pangs of conscience perhaps about not having visited somebody that you know would appreciate a visit from you. This is all dispensational stuff. Couldn't think of a better word than stuff there, so forgive me for that. This is all us being made, created in his image and him almighty God entrusting us with a particular stewardship for this time and season of our life on earth let's pray Father thank you so much for what you've shown us this day We've had a bit of a whistle-stop tour, Lord, through these five dispensational periods of Earth's history. But we thank you, Lord, that light has come forth from your word as we've done that together. 
And we ask you, Holy Spirit, each of us as individuals and us corporately as a church, we ask you, Lord, that you might make us better stewards, more effective stewards, the dispensation that you've given to us in these perilous, tumultuous, and otherwise uncertain times, Lord. Holy Spirit, please apply this word to our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for NBC Church Today. Our church meets at 1 McDonald Street, Narracourt, South Australia, 10 a.m. Sundays. Bible studies during the week help dive deeper into the Word, and our mission is to see Jesus glorified across the country through biblical missions and evangelism. Please consider leaving a review of the podcast to help further God's kingdom. Thank you.